Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm good and delighted, actually, to be able to speak with my friend and someone I've learned a lot from who's truly a master in this field of relationships, Dr. Stan Tatkin. This is a special episode. Yeah, we've been really looking forward to this one, which is going to focus on building stronger relationships. And as you said, to help us do that, we're joined today by a wonderful clinician and teacher and researcher. Stan is an expert on human behavior and particularly the unique dynamics found in couples' relationships. He's the creator of PACT, the Psychobiological Approach to Couples Therapy, which combines attachment theory, developmental neuroscience, and even arousal regulation into one highly effective, truly therapeutic approach. Stan's also written dozens of academic articles and six best-selling books, including Wired for Love and We Do. So Stan, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you, guys. It's so good to see you. Yeah, it's great to do this with you. I mean, we've been so looking forward to this. We've done a couple of episodes on relationships, and it's great to be joined by somebody who's such an expert in this territory. As we were kind of talking about before we got started, there are so many different places that we could begin with you that it's sometimes a little challenging to decide exactly where to start. But a word that tends to come up often when we talk about relationships or couples is attachment. And we can kind of use that as a jumping off point here. So we've covered attachment on the podcast in the past, so we can probably do this a little quickly. But just to get everyone on the same page, when we use that word in reference to our relationships, what does it mean and why does it matter in kind of a broad sense? Attachment is a biological theory that relates to the felt sense of safety and security, mm. right? Not the objective, but the felt sense of safety and security as an ongoing experience in one's primary attachment system. That could be the earliest caregivers or it could be uh, best friends. Uh, it could be a romantic relationship or one with a therapist. But that sense of safety and security is memory-based. And so we might think of attachment as starting with you know, millions of interactions between infant and caregiver where the infant is adapting to in a, a certain way the culture of the caregiver or the caregivers. And that adaptation is either secure, in which case the baby has resources to develop smoothly and tends to be more resilient, or less than secure, in which case the baby might be burdened by certain anxieties, certain fears around whether that felt sense of safety and security is ongoing, and that could interrupt development. So Stan, just a clarification for people, when you speak of memory, as you know, you're speaking not so much of explicit, specific recollections of particular episodes, but rather the implicit residues of lived experience, especially emotional, somatic, and motivational residues in the living body. Right. right. The memory I'm talking about is the inexpensive memory that's relegated to automation. We're automatic creatures, right? We'd have to be in order to conserve energy and to take on new complexities. So that memory is basically a recognition system where the body remembers. The body remembers in movements, voices, faces, and later on in words and phrases. And it is implicit. Mm. Very little actually is explicit. Well, we'll undoubtedly talk about many different kinds of ways that people can 
heal their own attachment pattern from childhood. I would say for myself, for many reasons, I was avoidantly insecurely attached. And then, as you know, that mode of relating, that kind of model and paradigm of relationships then gets transferred into or generalized broadly to other relationships in adulthood, maybe with some differentiation. Maybe there are particular kinds of situations, like for me a lot with groups, because I was very dorky and shy and young going through school. My attachment with them was really quite insecure and definitely avoidant. Whereas with certain individuals that I felt were friendly, I felt safer with them. I had more kind of influence over, there was just one of them and one of me. So I wasn't outnumbered and I could have relationships with them that felt more secure. So there's some differentiation, as you know, and some people are were more insecure than with others. Then the question becomes, how do we grow with that? How do we develop with that on our own? Maybe talking with a therapist, but we're going to focus mainly on what we can do on our own. So I just want to kind of create a frame here. Yes. And I shared that experience with you. <laughs> oh, did you? As a kid, you mean? Oh, I was the, oh, the, I was a dor- dorky kid. I was, an, I always felt like an outsider. Future therapist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. I, I spent most of my, most of my time with reunion fantasies and all sorts of other things as a way to protect myself from the extreme social anxiety I felt. Well, right there, you're talking about soothing yourself, yes. right? With reunion fantasies, with internal mental processes. Right. That's really interesting. Can you just elaborate that for people? When kids are neglected, and I don't mean material neglect, right? I'm mm. talking about on an attachment level, attachment values. Yeah. When they don't have a continuous interaction face-to-face, eye-to-eye, skin-to-skin with at least one caregiver, they begin to adapt, and they adapt by self-soothing and self-stimulating. We call that auto-regulation. Mm-hmm. Auto-regulation is normal. We all do it. But kids who are neglected over-rely on it because they really don't have any other way of regulating themselves. So that begins to set this course for being internal. I begin to do all my calculus in my head. I don't share what's going on in me. Therefore, if I feel shame, I can't reduce the shame by talking about it and having somebody normalize it for me. I'm in my head because I'm self-stimulating and self-soothing. I don't have the regular social cues to error correct. You know, being alone becomes a soothing normative state, one that is without interpersonal stress. Without social interaction, we have our minds only to rely on. And the mind is in Disneyland. Yep. You know, we have minds that have what's called a negativity bias, right? Yeah. From birth. And that's for survival. So kids who are neglected tend to have a much more imagination, but also a lot more shame and secrecy. Mm. They are burdened more by fear and aggression. Yeah. Uh, they're much more anxious, much more fearful, because they're not calmed regularly by interactions. And so I guess I'm talking about the more extreme, yeah. that people who are left alone tend to do things that are self-stimulatory, that are normative. No one says that they're bad or mm-hmm. wrong. They're adaptive. For the kid. Right. Society norms might interfere. And so we have people in this group that may be more embarrassed about some of their thoughts, about some of their mm-hmm. urges, about some of their aggression, fantasies, yeah. and so on, without having anybody. Or just feel vulnerable if they're exposed. Absolutely vulnerable when exposed. Because understandably, based on their history, they have formed expectations of either misunderstanding or mistreatment or both. Absolutely. Yeah. Neglect, by the way, is far more harmful than abuse even. 
abuse is at least a stimulus, right? I know something has happened to me. Mm-hmm. But kids that are neglected have this fishbowl effect and they can't really remember anything being wrong. They just think there's something wrong with them. There's no memory because nothing really happened to remember. So it's a, it's a, it's a harder it's a harder side of the insecure spectrum. So bad news, we learn things that we carry with us. Good news, we can learn things that we carry with us, different kinds of things, say in adulthood. Absolutely. And I wonder if we could maybe start moving into something, you know, take take this and then get into concrete things, let's say. Sure. So let's suppose that a person is in a relationship of some kind with somebody else in, in which there, there is some depth to it of some kind, family, partner, kids, adult kids, coworkers, friends, et cetera. And in our relationships, it strikes me that relationships are built from interactions as they both occur and are experienced. And interactions are built from uh, turn-taking, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, them and you, okay? So let's suppose that two people are trying to talk about something that's a little charged, a little problematic. Maybe one of them doesn't really want to hear it. What are some of the things that help interactions go well? I just think you must have observed a million interactions, <laughs> yeah. most of them lasting <laughs> a handful of seconds, back and forth, back and forth, right, with people. What are some of the things that help it go well, help them go well, that maybe people can take into account, you know, listening to you here? Well, without getting into the actual problems of being a human being that are built into all human beings, having nothing to do with attachment or personality, is that we have to understand that the human primate is built for threat perception, right? Survival of the species, survival of the organism. It's not personal. And so because of that, we can pick up threat cues through the face, voice, eyes, gestures, words, and so on. And since we're memory animals, we're uh, using these lightning fast recognition systems to pick up cues. Now, I'm afraid of something you're going to say, but in my fear of something you're going to say, what I do actually turns out maybe to be threatening to you inadvertently. I don't mean to do that. I'm just being automatic. And you, in turn, don't know what your face is doing. You start to get a little anxious about how my face is and how I'm talking. And now you start to do something that I perceive as threatening. And this is, this, is how the, this is how the ball rolls if we don't understand that we have to be careful and we have to be considerate. We have to think of the other person while we think of ourselves. As soon as we think only of ourselves, the other person gets the message and we square off and that's when we go to war. Mm. So a lot of this is really understanding how the mind works and all the features and bugs of the mind and respecting it. I think civilization has learned a great deal about the human primate and all of our built-in problems, and it's built in formalities in language, built-in formalities that keep us from dueling each other <laughs> because, it's, because it's so easy. It's so easy to become threatened. I would say this in a nutshell. If you're dealing with someone always go face-to-face, eye-to-eye. If you're talking about something that is going to be stressful, That's when you keep your eyes on the ball. We're legally blind on the sides. We have to be dead on. And you're watching to see whether that person is in a safe place, whether they look safe. Mm. If they don't look safe, don't continue until you do something to return them to safety. And here's the reason. If we don't feel 
absolute safety, we stop being influenceable. We stop being persuadable. And we will naturally be less gracious, less empathic. We don't put ourselves in the other person's shoes. And we garner all of our resources to protect our interests. This is just with a little bit of unsafety. And so the best thing to do is to go slowly, is to really pay attention, don't step on each other's lines, and think about the other person at the same time you're thinking about yourself. If I want something, I won't get anything unless I take care of you at the same time. If I try to complain, you won't hear me because if I'm threatening, I've lost my audience automatically. And this is the way human beings are. It's just a human being issue. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, your history of trauma, it doesn't matter. That's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. So what you're talking about here, Stan, or at least in my reading of it, and let me know your clarification on it, is that like a really fascinating part of your work focuses essentially on the somatic ways that we relate to another body. Yes. Yeah. And my girlfriend, Elizabeth, is practicing to be an MFT in somatic psychology right now. She's going to the CIIS. Good for her. Yeah. And she was actually uh, assigned one of your videos working with a, a couple as homework, essentially, to watch it in terms of the way in which you like interact with your clients and create rapport and kind of create a retainer with them. And it's really fascinating the ways that one body, our body, can either co-regulate somebody else, like bring them into an experience of safety that you're talking about, yes. or disrupt somebody else, bring them into an experience of threat or fear, also like you're talking about. Right. And one of the things that is really apparent in the work that you do with people is this way in which you sometimes will like draw attention to or seem very attentive to yourself, what can seem like these fairly minor shifts in somebody's body or tone of voice, poise, posture, whatever. Right. What are you looking for when you're doing that? And what can people learn themselves from that about like how to better interact with their partner? Well, I, golly, I, I have to see the video because I'm not quite sure what I did. Uh, <laughs> well, maybe more generally, maybe not in that one in particular, but yeah. I know, and I've had to watch myself quite a bit to see what my face actually does and what my voice does. Mm. And so through hours of looking through frame by frame, call it frame analysis, micro analysis of people reacting to me, me reacting to them, them reacting to each other, mm. I start to make my best guess in terms of how I can tilt my head to lower myself. This is something that all mammals will do to show friendliness or like they're not a threat or change my voice, change my position. I may roll closer, in some cases may roll away, further away. I may drop my head down and gaze avert mm. for a particular individual that that's going to be friendlier. But a lot of this is felt in the body. Yeah. When we get close to people, there's a kind of resonance that we feel. Mm -hmm. Again, it's unique to human primates. But we have to be relaxed. If we're not relaxed, we don't feel it. If we're talking, we don't feel it. Because talking speech uses up a ton of resources and numbs us. So as long as we're sitting and we're being an audience, receptive, we can start to feel. We can start to pick up somebody else's state, even their breathing. And so a lot of this, this skill in the presence of the therapist, which is hard to accomplish if you're learning to do this because you have so many plates you're spinning. But once you are comfortable in the chair, you can practice something called outside meditation. And that is your eyes are trained 
on every detail visually, looking at every every detail in the face, in the body, every shift and change, colors, patterns, movements, everything, pupil size. And at the same time, scanning the body, I'm just starting to do it now, for any tension and letting it go, relaxing. So it's a two-parter, right? Continuous attention to the visual field as you scan bodies and scan faces while relaxing your body. We kind of start to do it naturally. We kind of start to attune naturally when we do that. If I become self-conscious, then uh, my body will get thrown off. If I begin to use certain areas of the brain, my body gets thrown off, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we don't teach enough to people working with others is self-regulation, how to manage the self under stress, because working with people is stressful. Mm -hmm. People are stressful. (laughs) And so, so much of it is learning how to stay connected. If you If uh, we're in our body too much, our eyes go out and that looks creepy to the outside. So we have to keep our vision outside. So I think of it as outside meditation. So that's one way. Yeah. To kind of make that very practical for people who are thinking about ways to apply this themselves non-clinically, two things that you said that stuck out to me are one, attention to what the other person's body is doing and whether or not they're kind of showing obvious threat signals or obvious safety signals. And then second, just slowing down. Like the process that you're going through requires a certain application of like taking a pause, taking a breath before moving on to your next action. Does that sound more or less right? Yes, because error correction parts of the brain are slower Mm. and they require a little more time in order to make the error correction, the dirty data that's coming up from the body and areas of the brain that shoot first, ask questions later. So more time gives it more time. But also if our heart rates go up too much or blood pressure goes up too much, we actually lose the resources that, are avail- that would ordinarily be available um, for air correction areas of the brain. And we lose that capacity and then we become almost totally automatic. Mm-hmm. So being able to keep each other safe moment by moment, and that means I look at you and if I see something your face is going south, instead of saying, oh, you're anxious for us, that would just amplify your anxiety. I do something. Hopefully I know the animal I'm with and maybe that's moving forward or taking your hand or saying, you know, I love you and I care about you and I so appreciate you. And then when I see your face return to safety, then I can complain, right? But I don't do anything unless you are, you're in my care, I'm in your care. Mm. And that's how we get things done, because we want to get something done, right? And the problem when people aren't paying attention, they don't think in terms of being in each other's care, that I have to watch you regulate you, you're watching me regulating me, and we keep each other safe, we can talk about anything, Mm. and we can do it more efficiently. We can influence each other, persuade each other, bargain with each other, and more importantly, we get something. Mm. The problem with threat is that as soon as we start to feel that we're bifurcating or squaring off, we're going to get nothing. We walk away with nothing except more threat, frustration, and memory, memory of, of resentment, right? And that, that accrues. So this is really important that we're doing this as we go, as we go, and with mistakes. And the great thing about mistakes is apology. I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have said that, Forrest. That was that was me. I'm sorry I raised my voice. I'm, I'm going to lower it. You're right. I did that. That was my fault. 
All these things are, that are reparative return somebody to a sense of safety. And it also shows that we care more about the relationship than being right. Mm -hmm. And that, again, that's friendly. So a lot of this we weren't brought up with, going back to, Ricky, you were saying attachment, people on the insecure sides of attachment are considered to operate according to a one-person psychological system. That's because these systems, these cultures, aren't squarely focused on relationship. They're focused on the self, on self-needs, performance, appearance, taking care of a parent. And this is in unjust and insensitive to the kid, who then later on and does the same thing, right? And so we have people who mean well, who want secure attachment, but they're expecting the worst. They're remembering being hurt, being either abandoned or engulfed, taken over, having their autonomy stolen from them. They remember that. And so they begin to protect themselves in ways that are threatening to their partner. Mm -hmm. And so, Rick, you were saying our nature state is to amplify what we know and what we know is what we've experienced. That's why across time, relationships are not as long lasting as we would like. The only way that we can overcome this is as adults deciding what our relationship should be. What is the culture we want to build? You and I, Forrest, we want to go forward in life as a team. Why should we do it? What's in it for us? What are we going to do for each other that's better than if we were alone? And so we come up with a shared purpose. We come up with a shared vision for why we're doing this. And we come up with shared principles of governance, how we're going to protect each other from each other. Mm. And this is extremely important because we know that those are the only unions that can last a long, long time. It's those unions that are fair and just, sensitive, there are guardrails based on mutual agreements and principles. This has always kept us in line and made us better people, mm. right? This is how we become better. Otherwise, it's the Wild West. Yeah. Our nature state is to do whatever we want when we want to and to do what's expedient. We're very lazy creatures. Stan, as I listen here, practicing what you're preaching, I'm feeling calm in my body and calming and really appreciating how admirable it is what you're talking about, uh, both as an aspiration and as a method. And also, I'm reflecting on situations I've been in, and I've known many people have reported to me in which, even while they would accept the value of seeking the possibility of helping the other to feel safe as a precondition for working through a conflict productively, I've seen many situations and heard about many situations where either or both, number one, the other person isn't going to feel safe in any kind of real interaction, particularly when their own conduct is at all on the table. Just the sheer possibility of their behavior being on the table or the other person having a wish or a complaint at all is itself entirely triggering for them and or they're utterly unwilling to be regulated it and thereby influenced in any way, shape, or form by the other person. The attempt of the other person to help them feel safer is itself offensive and threatening to them and shields up, et cetera. The other concern that gets raised to this is the situation in which person A 
yes, could make efforts to help person B feel safer, but part of the issue is person A feels way too responsible already for how the relationship is. In my experience, statistically, it's much more often women than men who will say that, understandably. And they're sick and tired of waltzing their partner around the dance floor and micro-attuning endlessly to keep their partner in the conversation. And they're just like they've had it up to here with having to do that. Okay, so I've laid out some two big yes buts here, and I wondered how you would respond to them. Sure. Okay, well, those are, are valid. So we have to differentiate if we're talking about an interdependent relationship, one where there's a commitment involved, as opposed to any other relationship where you could say goodbye very easily. In an interdependent relationship, we're considering two people who have agency, who want to engage in a conditional relationship based on terms. These terms are agreed upon as what is the right things to do in all these instances. What are the right things to do according to us when they're the hardest things to do, right? Principles are perfect, people aren't. So we build principles as an expectation of conduct because we know that human primates by nature are warlike, aggressive, selfish, self-centered, moody, fickle, opportunistic, racist, xenophobic. What could possibly go wrong, right? And so knowing that people who understand that this is the history of human behavior, put principles in place where it's mutually assured destruction, lest we don't obey, but it's mutually assured survival and thriving. We thrive, we can make each other do things because we have agreement, we both want this thing. We both want this thing and uh, we're going to get each other to do it by permission and agreement. Therefore, we can push each other and limit each other and make each other better, we can grow. We can have a greater character, greater self-esteem, simply by planning it, simply by building it first. People who don't build this first are rudderless, right? They're working in a structure that isn't co-constructed. The architecture is not built by what both people really want. So what happens if you have somebody, they really want something, but they disagree on big ticket items? They really can't be together. Because if we are pointing in different directions, we'll fight. We have to be pointing in the same direction in, in general. We both have to be wanting the same thing. Otherwise, we can't do business. We just can't. This is true for all civilizations, all unions. We don't do the due diligence in the beginning, especially with couples. For some reason, we do it with businesses and churches. And, mm-hmm. But we don't do it in marriages. We don't think it's just, oh, we'll fly by the seat of the pants. Love will will out. I have a business background too, and I've been struck by these 10-page partnership agreements, right? right? And then I think about, and it'd have to be overseen and so forth. And then people who just get married and have a house and have kids and whatnot, you know, woo, they just entered it willy-nilly without regard to, okay, how are we going to exit? Anyway, keep going. Sorry. Keep going. It, it becomes, they're, they're co-creating their relationship ethic. It's theirs. It's their ethos. This is what we do. This is what we don't do. And they hold each other to it. Mm. So, but what about my question? Yes, which I'm getting to that. They're kind of stuck with each other. Let's assume they're stuck with each other and it's the real world. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Um, are they stuck with each other? Attachment is- They have kids, they work together, they're neighbors. It, well, it depends. Are we talking again about a, a couple union or a family member? Potentially. Either way, if it is a system of shared power, shared authority, 
right? Which is usually a couple. That should operate by different rules of justice and fairness than a sibling, than a neighbor, right? You're not beholden, you're not interdependent in the same way. And for those people, learning how to deal with a difficult person, learning how to be strategic, learning how to be attractive and not use fear, threat, or guilt goes a long way towards getting what you want and dealing with difficult people. That's more of a political, strategic, tactical way of thinking because you want something, but you're not going to fully depend on this person and you do not have any agreements that you can hold each other to. So there's the difference. Yeah, whether you're opting into something or not. Because even in... Exactly. Yeah, in situations where you've essentially opted in, even in a long-term partnership, where as Dad is saying, a a lot of entanglements, a lot of co-creations, a lot of ways in which you're wrapped up in each other's business. Um, If you have the ability to opt out ultimately on some level, like that changes the dynamic, I have to imagine. Yes, it changes the dynamic, but here's a hitch. The attachment system is a biological mandate which means for most of us, we'll stay in bad marriages because we can't quit each other. And we can't really explain why that is. Uh, Abandonment fears, yes, but there's just something very sticky about the attachment system that goes beyond reason. It's an existential issue for us. And so we lose our sense of principles. The right thing is no longer the right thing. Everything I do now is to avoid loss. And that's, that's a tragic situation, right? I'm stuck in a relationship of any kind because I'm afraid of losing something. What I'm pitching here is that we operate more by principles, which means that we decide ahead of time, buy into what we're going to choose as the right thing to do when it's the hardest. What's the best thing to do when it's the hardest? Now, I could explain all the neurobiological parts of this that are really important. But the front end, the user fit interface, is as it's always been. We've always been ruled by what we agree are our social norms and what is in our best interest. And hopefully it's in a mutual interest because we want to get along. Otherwise we steal, we rob, we do terrible things. And we're no different. And with all the science, we have to have some idea here. So what does this all mean? What can we do regardless of whether we're an avoidant or an island or a dog or a cat? There has to be something that unifies us that has worked throughout history, and that is agreements. That is really thinking about, why are we going to do this thing together? What do we really want? And do we want the same thing? That first. How we're going to do it is a whole other matter, but you'd be surprised how many people that pair bond and they have no idea why they're doing it. Love, maybe, but love is never enough. Yeah, getting into that for a second here, Stan, you've worked with who knows how many couples at this point over the years, and you've seen a lot of successful and less successful relationships and interactions uh, between couples. And to kind of summarize this question really succinctly, how can somebody know when something is a deal breaker? Um, Because I think that a lot in the courtship process, people go through this process of, negotiating essentially what you're talking about. Nobody's perfect. No relationship is perfect. So we have things that we decide, I'm just going to live with that. And then we have things that we decide are deal breakers and I can't live with that. And the fuzzy part is when somebody isn't quite sure if something is a deal breaker or not. So how have you seen people navigate that? And what are, I guess, end of the day, the things that you would recommend be deal breakers for people? 
A deal breaker is subjective. A deal breaker is this is something I can't live without. I would be deeply unhappy if I didn't have it or I'd be deeply unhappy if it were in existence in my relationship. Um, and that's subjective. And so people have to be honest and often they aren't. I want so much to get married that, <laughs> that I'll forget or I'll bend reality and pretend it doesn't matter or I'll kick the can down the road. We'll deal with it later. And these things wreak havoc, right? So I want a baby. I've always wanted a baby. You don't like kids, never want kids. We look at the abyss that is the end of our relationship. And one of us looks up and says, let's buy a house. That's what we do. And it's a mistake because penny wise pound foolish. We don't want to lose anything. It takes about a year to really get to know somebody, maybe a little longer, because we don't really show our cards for quite a while. And so it takes a while to really vet somebody, but if, if one is keeping their eyes out for and thinking about the perfect relationship, not the perfect person, that's a mistake. The perfect relationship, what are the elements? For me, a perfect relationship. And person X fits into that. They want to do it with me. If they do that, that will save them a lot of time and grief. So you want to raise your kids Muslim. I want to raise my kids Catholic. We've got to take that off the table. And one way we do that is by sitting down and arguing it. Let me convince you of why it's the best idea to raise our kids Muslim, mm. why it's a good idea for me and why it's a good idea for you and you, uh, or vice versa, rather. And so we, we bargain, we negotiate, we talk about it because we're making an agreement that's not going to come back and get us. Mm. There are other deal breakers that could happen as we move through time, but the ones that are obvious should be taken care of because if we're disagreeing on those big ticket items like transparency, I believe in full transparency. You don't think it's a great idea. We should have our, keep our privacy. Neither of us are wrong, but can we actually do business together? Can mm, we actually mm -hmm. live together? Yeah. Think of all the trouble we'll, we'll get into that's in the threat area. So this is about happiness. This is about having the resources to do awesome things that two people who are aligned can do. They can do something that a single person can't do. They can get each other to be better. They can help each other with their trauma. They can help each other with their habits, their laziness, their being too workaholic. We can do remarkable things with another person that we can't do alone, if we agree, mm -hmm. if we agree. And then a lot of these other things that are problematic in attachment, in arousal regulation, can actually work out much, much easier because we want the same things. And having that higher bar, that goal, reminds us why we're doing this when we find each other uh, complete uh, pain in the behinds, which all people are. So Stan, I've been reflecting on what you said earlier about agreement and the importance of doing what one can reasonably, taking initiative as one can, to help another person feel safer. I think of this kind of saying out of the Buddhist tradition, give no being cause to fear you. Now that is important to understand that you might give beings cause to think that they won't get dessert if they don't eat their vegetables, if they're your kid, or they won't get an A in the class if they don't turn in their homework, et cetera, if they're a student, but not to feel intimidated by you right. or threatened by you. And we're, as you know, so vulnerable to feeling afraid, especially in the presence of others. So yes. I'm, really, yes. I'm really absorbing what you're saying here. And I'm reflecting about this notion of agreement and 
this fundamental frame. What's the frame of the relationship? And can we pay attention to that foundation of safety and mutual vision or kind of agreement of what we're up to here? And then on that foundation, take care of issues, business, work through grievances, and so forth. But if we don't take care of that foundation, it's like trying to do a backflip off of a shaky platform. It won't go well. Okay. And it seems to me from all that, which is wonderful, one of the fundamental conditions for a relationship of substantial magnitude, like becoming a life partner, is that the other person, clearly, in good faith, is willing to communicate with you and collaborate with you in the construction of this foundation and is willing to address foundation issues, frame issues like broken agreements or what is our basis for a relationship here such that it is actually a deal breaker if that other person is not prepared to really enter into a real conversation, maybe shaped by gender socialization, culture, fine, but basically willing to talk about it. And a related version of that I kind of want to offer as well is the willingness to repair. Right. To me, if someone's unwilling to repair, that's kind of a yellow flag. And if they're unwilling to repair the lack of repair, that's a red flag in any significantly substantial or vulnerable relationship. Okay, I've I have expounded. I want to turn it back over to the master here. What do you think about what I'm saying? And I realized I didn't really address one of the things you said earlier, and that is dealing with somebody who can't be soothed or doesn't seem like they can be comforted or be safe. First of all, you probably wouldn't marry that person. You'd be dealing with somebody else. Uh, I would doubt that you would end up marrying that person. They wouldn't get uh, past the vetting period. But let's say you have somebody who now is depressed and anxious, maybe trauma is coming back up and you're married. We're animals, and many times because we talk, we misunderstand each other. You know, it's easier to work with animals and babies because they don't talk. We have to intuit them. We have to find behavioral ways of understanding the animal we're with. Not many partners spend the time to become a whisperer for that partner and learn them. There are very few people who can't be returned to safety that are out on the streets. Most of them are in hospital or in the jail. (laughs) So there's always something. The question is whether it's fair. So I'm spending all this time to help you and to work with you. But this is a quid pro quo. You can be as big of a burden as you want, as long as I can. And if I can't be a burden and you can't take care of me, bets are off, right? That's something we get paid for. That's not a union of equals, right? So being a burden is not a problem. It's not being equal burdens is fair. So then we go back to the idea of fairness, right? Anything too unfair is going to crash and burn the relationship of any kind. It's going to accrue threat and and resentment and memory. So that has to be understood in that kind of relationship or it is an asymmetric relationship. So there's symmetric relationships, which is the adult pair bonding situation. Even though people come to it and want it asymmetric, they want it to be little, they want to be young, they want to be passive, they don't want to show up. But then they're not fit for partnership if the other person finds that they're not operating according to the agreements and fairness. So we we have situations here that make people step up. So let me frame this in, in yet another way, if I could. We live in reality. We live in a dangerous world. It's always been this way. Life, the world is indifferent. It's hostile, unpredictable. We know bad things are coming that we can't know what they are, but we know they're coming, just like COVID. 
When chips are down, people scramble and take care of themselves. So why would people get together to ensure a union where they have each other's backs, where they create a shelter in the storm, they create a safe haven, because the world will not offer that. So you and I enter in agreements to keep each other absolutely safe and secure at all times. Can we do that? No. When we fail, and if our agreement is, I'm ensuring your safety and security at all times without question. The only thing I can do when I mess up is beg for forgiveness and make it right. There's no argument. That's governance. And so in nations, in places where bullets are flying over people's heads, they don't have the time to argue and to fight about most things we fight about. They're too busy surviving. And they know what's important and what isn't important. Unfortunately, with COVID, people are finding out either what is important or isn't important, or they're breaking up because they can't stand each other. But this is a time to understand that this existential threat has always been around. But we've acted as if it's a luxury. It's a luxury to protect each other rather than it's a necessity. Our lives depend on these things. And when they do, we step up. And so a lot of this is attitude and ideas about me, 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 my, I, as opposed to we. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're not going to do. And we're going to enforce that because we want something better. We want to be safe. We want to thrive. We want to get our dreams. We want to be ourselves. And we're going to do that. The rest of it is bumping into each other and apologizing (laughs) and pushing each other around, uh, you know, because it's easier and because it gets the job done and because we're in it together. I always think of this as a three-legged race. It's the best thing I can think of, those potato sack races. If two people are trying to get somewhere and their legs are locked together, if they can't intuit each other, work together, they're not going anywhere. If one of them tries to go too fast and the other one, they'll fall. And that is what I'm talking about. A two-person system is a different orientation. It's a different orientation. You and I, Rick, we're not going to make any decisions until we get each other fully on board. If we're not on board, we don't move. If we know that's the only way we can do this, we'll do it. We'll do it. I will bargain. I'll make it right for you. You'll make it right for me. We'll find a way because we have no other way to do it. If we think we don't have to do it, we won't. One of us will make the decision, you know, you're too slow. Yeah, I want to kind of ask about that that stand because it it does and i think that it's it's ideal and i think that a lot of people feel like they're in relationships where that's fundamentally not happening you dream for the ideal ideals are perfect because relationships actually don't exist except in our heads you can't take a picture of a relationship you just take a picture <laughs> of people <laughs> yeah so it's a shared mythology mm. we just want to make sure the mythology is the same we're making something out of whole cloth we just want to make sure we're seeing the same thing you know at least close enough it's never perfect but it's close enough yeah then we can move mountains if we have the dream then we build in the structure and then we build in the enforcement and that is, is governance great right? Governance is working together. Mm -hmm. But there has to be previous agreements based on a vision, based on I want that. Not I'm doing it because you want it. Not because I'm doing it because I'll get in trouble if I don't. It's all carrot. That works. It does. But we're really lazy. 
We really don't want to do that. That's an adult thing to do, to think about the future, to plan, to predict what could go wrong and put in guardrails, Mm -hmm. right? And not to be naive. Yeah. These things we're building in have nothing to do with feeling because feeling tomorrow, I may not like you. So I'm not going to do the things we said. Well, then the principle is not worth anything at all. Yeah. I wasn't really fully in because these principles are for no matter what we feel. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. We're going to do affectionate things for each other, Forrest, every day, affectionate, romantic things every day without fail. If I hate you, I still do it. If we're breaking up, I still do it. If you betrayed me, I still do it. The principle is perfect. That's why we're setting the bar there because we want that. The rest of it is our human nature, which is to be as energy conserving as possible and not do anything we don't want to do. Yeah, you've given a lot of sort of frameworks for people that help contribute to the building of a healthy relationship, kind of irrespective of circumstance. You're talking about forging sound agreements, having a shared vision of what the relationship could look like. You mentioned being more attuned to the physical state of your partner, which I think is such a underlying part of what you're referring to here. Attunement to even very minor changes of tone or expression and awareness. And I think that maybe a word to kind of encapsulate all of this is just being really interested. Yes. Like, are you interested in your partner or not? Yes. Are you curious about what's going on inside of the organism or not? Do you kind of care what's happening in their system or not? Yes. And it's sort of hard to give people like advice on how to do that better because it's such an individual thing. But uh, if you have got some ideas, I'd love to hear it. Two things. Great. Presence and attention. Hmm presence and attention. We have brains that conserve energy. We automate everybody. We think we know each other and we don't. We actually carry a picture of our person around in our head. How often are we looking, gazing into their eyes, examining their face, looking at the new lines that have appeared, seeing the stranger who is actually a stranger, anew, so that novelty comes back. Mm -hmm. Automation is good for getting things done. It's terrible for joy for excitement, and for finding the newness in the ordinary, finding the strange in the familiar. We have to be present in attention enough of the time to be in real time and to see that we're alive with another nervous system that is fascinating and that is lovely to look at and is always a mystery that we're learning. And this is how we learn about ourselves, self and other intertwined. You can't learn about yourself without being in an orbit with another. And so the only way to overcome our nature state, which is all the things I said, our memory is terrible. People shouldn't be fighting about the past. They'll never get out of that tar pit. If you find yourself looking backwards, you're making a mistake. You take what's gone wrong and you move forward and put something in place for the next time. Fix it. Perception is like a funhouse mirror. It changes with our state, and our state is driven by our memory. Our memory is terrible, and our state is driven by it. If I feel mad, I remember all the times I'm mad at you. And then I look for signs that you're angry, so my perception changes. It's a house of mirrors. If we think that our communication is good, which it's not, ever, 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 we're mostly misunderstanding each other much of the time. We think we understand, we don't. If we think we're correct, if we think our memory is right, that's the hubris of a human being. It's not. So we have to override this by being smarter and understanding how we operate and to really override our base instincts as much as we can. Much of that's through planning and preparation. 
Some of it is done improvisationally. But as long as we're on it, as long as I can say, you know, hey, remember, we decided you wouldn't do that. I'm not going to do that. You don't do it. Stop. And all you have to say, because we agreed, sorry, yield. We can shift and mold and train each other if we're safe. If we're not safe, talk to the hand. So you're really talking here, Stan, about creating a fair relationship. Is that a pretty good summary? Yeah. Yeah. Fairness in the eyes of the other, not yourself. Does this relate to what you were saying before we turned on the recording about social justice theory applied to relationships? Do you want to elaborate on that? Yes. So social justice theory, going back to John Rawls and before Locke and, and Rousseau, is justice is fairness. Also, Ivan Bozer Meninaj, who was a family systems therapist, found that kids who experience injustice in their family of origin, how many do? Most. <laughs> will pay society back in the form of their future relationships. So when we think of fairness and justice, we're talking about the felt sense. If I feel that what you did was unfair, in this system, all you have to care about is that I felt it was unfair. If I felt that your voice was loud and you were yelling at me, you don't have to worry whether you were yelling at me. I heard you were yelling at me. That's the only concern. Perception is reality. We're tied together. And it's a different thing. It's a different orientation. Perception rules. One person's yelling is another person's whisper. So we're dealing with a whole different system of letting go of one's sense of righteousness, me, mine, I, and I'm putting my money on the relationship. We both are. Mm. And this is how we stay in concert with each other, always considering the other, because where he or she goes, I go. Mm. That's a psychobiological fact. There is no disconnection there, right? If you're angry, I'm not, a, I'm not a happy camper. If you're sad, I'm not a happy camper. Therefore, we are tied together in that sense. So this is why I have to keep my eyes on you and make sure how you perceive me, not how I think I am. But if I want to work well with you, I have to think about what your optics are, what your audition is, what your memory is, what your trauma is. If I don't watch out, I will amplify your trauma and make you worse. If you're worse, it makes me worse. Mm -hmm. So this is, think of people balancing on a board. They have to watch each other in order to stay balanced or they'll both flip over. That's the game we're playing. It's a whole different way of thinking. And it's psychobiologically sound, neurobiologically sound. It's sound in every way. It's just orienting people this way, which is in and of itself hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to ask you about that orienting here, which is, I think that a lot of people's initial response when they hear somebody say something like, it doesn't matter, or I'm going to paraphrase what you're saying much less skillfully, that the issue is not whether or not you think your partner was yelling. The issue is whether they think that you were yelling at yep. them effectively. Yep. And then yep. people's natural response might be, well, you know, what if they're wrong? I, I wasn't yelling. Or they might something like, well, there are people out there where, where I don't believe in their interpretation of the world. And we can look at that on all sorts of different levels these days. Uh, like, why should I care about how they felt about this certain thing? But the key premise here, yeah, the, pre, the key premise here, Stan, is that the person wants to buy in. Because what's coming back is not going to be good. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> right. like, we're, we're speaking here to relationships where there's a desire to keep the relationship functional, not just with like a random person out in the world. No, random person, you can walk away. If they're... Yeah, totally. <laughs> so, but if you're bought into the relationship, this is an important thing to do, to believe what your partner is saying to you. Do you care 
about the other person and the relationship, or do you care about your own sense of what's right? Hmm. That's really very different. It's really very different. Now, they sound similar, but they're really not. Remember, we've never lived outside of our heads. We never will. Everything is in our heads. All perception. And if we argue about perception, not only do we never win that argument, I've never seen anybody win an argument over perception. No, you didn't feel scared. It never happens. Mm, mm-hmm. Or we decide to put our attention squarely on the relationship, which is going to pay dividends that I fall on my sword for you, which you're going to do for me. Because we care more about the fealty of our relationship, the harmony, the health of our relationship, because that is how we're going to survive and thrive. It's going to pay out now. It just feels like it's not going to. Our pride, our feeling, maybe a history of, um, you know, I'm always getting the short end of the stick. Insecures have a harder time because they have memory of unfairness. And so they anticipate it. And they therefore do unfair things. So this is uh, this takes a while to work out. And sometimes it takes a third party to help and train and teach uh, and watch. A lot of this is done through training. You know, you go to school to learn how to do certain things, how to fence, how to do sports, how to do anything. We don't go to school for the relationship, you know, how to interact, how to deal with stress, how to deal with the person when they're the most difficult person on the planet for us, right? What am I going to do when you do this? What I do is going to make a difference in terms of our mutual sense of safety and competence. So it's effortful, but it's worth it. Because we know what can't work. What can't work is a one-person system. It's too unfair and will accrue resentment. And it will split up. Or it will stay together, but there will be very unhappy people. Life is short. Why settle for that? Why? Yeah. So Stan, uh, unfortunately, we're going to be wrapping up pretty soon. And with your permission, I wonder if if you'll indulge me in a kind of a lightning round here of a few questions in a row, if that's okay. So first question, yeah. imagine that you're talking with someone, let's say in their late 20s or early 30s, who's wondering what sort of person, what are the criteria or what kind of characteristics would be the top three, top five characteristics to look for in a life partner, which they themselves are willing to, let's say, agree to or aspire to themselves? What would be on your boom, boom, boom short list of things to look for in a life partner? They want to put the couple relationship first in terms of governance above all other things, because that's going to matter. What do you mean other things? Uh, Children, family of origin themselves, their employment, their work, Mm, right? Okay. And that's simply a governance issue that we we come first. We put the oxygen mask on first. We tell each other everything. There's no secrets. There's a full transparency. We're each other's confidants. Why not? What's the point of having a, a point person if they're not going to do that? That we protect each other in all instances, in public and in private, those three. What does it mean in private to protect each other? Like I said, if you start to feel threatened by me, I take care of it immediately. Mm. If you feel insecure, I'm on it. If you feel unsafe, I'm on it. There's no hesitation. There's no argument. There's no, hey, I said I loved you in circa 1950. Yeah, I'm on it because I cannot afford you for a second to feel unsafe or insecure in any way, because that will blow back on me now, right? That's my charge. And so that's in uh, person, but outside, we are the leaders. 
We are the big bosses. We handle everyone and everything. We prepare for everything that we go out to. Everyone comes to our party. It's a way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Wherever we go, we're home. Home is a relationship, not a place. That's great. So priority, honesty, and protection. Protection, yeah. Great. Okay, next question now. You're deeply knowledgeable in practice. What would you say is the most important thing you do each day inside your own mind for your own well-being? Meditate. <laughs> meditate, meditate. Uh, exercise. I hug my wife throughout the day and do stupid things like, do you love me? Uh, you still want to marry me? So it's okay to ask for what you want from other people. Oh, too. very important. Okay, good. You definitely have to do this. You grab what you want. You get what you want, right? And you're yeah. and and it's water, right? That's what we do for each other. That's why we get paid the big bucks. So we are constantly resourcing each other all day, every day. And I don't think I could do what I do without that. I we she couldn't either. Yeah, we're all busy people. We know what this is like, right? It's been you know all these plays. Mm. That and I've taken to uh, using a recorder again to uh, talk out my thoughts and feelings as if I'm talking to somebody. I did this once a long time ago during my avoidant days when I was traveling alone and I was existentially in crisis. I got a little recorder and I started talking to it as if there was someone who was going to listen to it at the end. And that contained me. Mm. That made me feel safe. Uh, again, we need people. <laughs> We're interactional animals. We need to talk. We need to interact, even if it's with something imaginary. Yeah. I think that's what praying is about. Ah, beautiful. And then last question. For me, at least, I don't know, Forrest may have his own lightning rod. I don't know. But if you could go back in time and talk with yourself at some younger age, and you can pick the younger age. I don't know why intuitively, I'm just attuning to you as a 10-year-old. I don't know if that time was important for you. But at any younger age in particular, there was a real turning point time for you. If you could go back in time and talk with that younger you, what would you want to say? Uh, I'm so sorry you feel so scared all the time and that you feel so unsafe and that you feel like you're so weird. You're not, you're beautiful, you're perfect the way you are. I got you. I got you. Thank you. Yeah, it's a beautiful reflection, Stan. And I think it's one that, I mean, I certainly would wish for my past self. And I think that many people would wish for their past selves. And and that feeling that you've, you've echoed, I think, so many times during this conversation of helping people feel safe and helping them feel held. And if you can do that, then you can probably have a lovely relationship with that person. And if that's a point of struggle, then there are going to be many other things that are going to be a point of struggle. I have to say, like Thich Nhat Hanh, I'm Stan, made up of non-Stan elements. There are so many people that have saved me in my life and have scaffolded me that have been lovely to me. I don't think I would have gotten here without that. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Stan. Thank you for doing this today. And we just so appreciate your time here. And it's such a pleasure to talk with you. This is wonderful. I love you guys. So today we had the pleasure of meeting with Dr. Stan Tatkin. And we explored relationships and the ways in which we can form more effective relationships, particularly romantic ones, with other people. We started by talking about attachment and using attachment theory as a kind of ground for the conversation as a whole. The key to that part of the conversation was that our early attachment relationships, the ones that we form in childhood with a primary caregiver, have consequences for our later adult relationships, including our relationships with romantic partners. And the residues of those tendencies can be felt in the present day. 
This means that if we're the partner to somebody who has a certain kind of tendency, or if we have certain kinds of tendencies ourselves, particularly ones that are a little maladaptive or can manifest with some challenging behaviors inside of the relationship, it's important that we be aware of them and that we have some sensitivity toward them. During the conversation as a whole, Stan really consistently emphasized a couple of key points. The first, and really above everything else, was the importance of creating clear agreements with your partner and sticking to those agreements in fair ways. Stan didn't really say this ever overtly, but implicit in this is the belief that if you're with somebody who cannot consistently make or keep their agreements, they probably are not a good partner for you. That's probably a problematic person. And unless there are real strong reasons to do otherwise, you should probably consider exiting that romantic relationship. There are people where it's challenging to exit our relationships with them for a variety of different reasons. I don't want to act like this is always the easiest thing in the world to do, but man, that person's probably not a great candidate. And this relates to a second key point that Stan consistently made, the importance of fairness. One of the lines he said that really stuck with me is that it's okay if one person is a burden inside of the relationship, if the other person is allowed to be a burden too, because people are imperfect. We all burden each other in different ways. What's important is that there be a relative equality inside the relationship of who's burdening who at any given moment and how much they burden each other. Then alongside this and kind of to cap it is the idea of not getting into your relationships by accident making active rather than passive choices about the way that you want the relationship to be. A lot of people find themselves just kind of stumbling into their romantic relationship, and then they just kind of wake up one day and they realize that 18 months has passed, and they haven't actually had that many conversations about the way that they would really both love the relationship to be. They just sort of got here. And then one thing leads to another, and people end up married, they end up kids, and they go, wait a second, is this really what I want? And that's not generally the way that we want things to work out for you. And generally, the most successful way for things to be is for there to be more of an active process of sitting down and really deciding what you want the relationship to look like. Another point that Stan emphasized during our conversation was the importance of creating the experience of consistent safety. Humans are animals. It's very, very easy for us to feel unsafe or to feel threatened by the circumstances around us. This is particularly true if you have certain paradigms of attachment that have been kind of built into you over time or by your early childhood relationships. And one of the ways that we can create a more consistent experience of safety is by physically attuning to our partner. Inside of Stan's work, he is extremely attentive to little micro-expressions, body posture, the way in which somebody else's vocal tone changes. And yeah, those are therapeutic things. They're things that you come to the ability to do based on a lifetime of therapeutic practice. But they're also things that we can do, maybe in small ways, inside of our own relationships with our partners. We can be attentive to the way that their body looks and feels to us. We can stay interested in what's going on inside of them. And we can do things to help perpetuate the experience of novelty, which is something that Stan said toward the end of the conversation that's going to really stick with me personally. It's easy for us to just kind of get used to another person, build a still picture of them inside of our mind, and have that picture be the thing that we form a relationship with, as opposed to forming the relationship with this dynamic, changing individual 
that we can rediscover on a daily basis. And that was just such a beautiful encapsulation of so much that we talked about. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. If you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review, it really does help us out. Also, as a reminder, you can find us on social media at Being Well Podcast on Instagram, and I have a YouTube channel as well. You can find me, it's Forrest Hansen on YouTube. Finally, if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. So that's it for today's episode. I really enjoyed talking with Stan. I hope that you had a good time listening as well. And if you have questions about anything that you heard here, you can send me an email at contact at beingwellpodcast.com. So until next time, thanks for listening.